Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, A More Human Face, Steve Biko. Our discussion of the leaders of the ANC in South Africa, wrapped up with the incarceration of Nelson Mandela in 1964, convicted of sabotage. As he languished in prison for more than a quarter century, the struggle against apartheid continued, and he was hardly in a good position to follow every development. In his memoirs, Mandela tells us how a new breed of young militant started turning up as fellow prisoners. He was amazed when one of them, ordered to doff his cap to a prison guard, calmly refused to do so unless he were given a good reason. This, remarked Mandela, was our first exposure to the black consciousness movement. This movement was analogous to, and indeed directly inspired by, the black power movement in America. It was about self-respect, unity, and courage, and this last virtue was one that its founder had in abundance. His name was Stephen Bantu Biko, but he's usually simply called Steve Biko. His life is most famous for its end. He was murdered by the South African police while in custody on September 12, 1977, after having been arrested under the terms of the Terrorism Act. The previous year, he'd already spent about 100 days in jail without ever being charged. Biko often noted the counterproductive tactics of the apartheid government, so he would have been the first to predict that his killing at the hands of the state would turn him into a celebrated martyr and symbol of apartheid's brutality. He knew that this brutality was itself a sign of weakness. As he once said, the maxim of the South African state was, if you cannot make a man respect you, then make him fear you. He believed that such treatment must be greeted by defiant confrontation, not appeals for sympathy or mercy. As he once wrote, when you come to a round table to beg for your deliverance, you are asking for the contempt of those who have power over you. Because Biko refused to fear the racist tyrants of South Africa, they feared him instead, which is, of course, why they destroyed him. But just as we should not reduce the story of Mandela to his years in jail, so we should not remember Biko only as a victim. He was an activist and student leader and a philosopher too. In fact, Richard Fox, who wrote the libretto for an opera about Biko, once commented that whereas Mandela was very much in the tradition of Kenyatta or Nyerere, leaders of political movements, Steve Biko was much more of a philosopher. Of course, we've made a case that Mandela can be understood as a philosopher too, not just as a leader of a political movement. Fox also seems ignorant of Kenyatta's famed anthropological contribution facing Mount Kenya and the widespread acceptance of Nyerere as among the most famous African philosophers of all. Indeed, one of the most striking things about Africana thought in the 20th century is how many political leaders became notable for their philosophical acumen. A better contrast might be that Biko was at least as much a philosopher as figures like Nyerere and Mandela, while being less of a political leader. He never led a military campaign or a whole country. Rather, he was a student activist, more along the lines of a young Stokely Carmichael. Indeed, Biko once said in an interview in 1972 that he had by that time spent years working through Carmichael's book, Black Power, without having yet finished it. As in the United States, student politics in South Africa was, among other things, a great producer of acronyms. Where Carmichael was involved with SNCC and CORE, Biko was a member of the National Union of South African Students, or NUSAS, 
but broke with them in 1968 to form the South African Students' Organization, called by the acronym SASO. In the following year, he became its president. Biko himself provided some useful context for the history of the group in his inaugural address, and also in the 1972 interview just mentioned, conducted at SASO headquarters with Gail Gerhardt. He explained that, following a crackdown on black resistance in the 1960s, the period of Mandela's imprisonment, the only voices being heard against apartheid came from white liberals. Student organizations like NUSAS presented themselves as interracial undertakings, but in fact it was the white students who took leadership roles and set the agenda. The idea of SASO was to create a group for non-white students, since in Biko's view, it would only be once they decide to lift themselves from the doldrums that they could ever hope to get out of them. SASO may have had as many as 3,500 members at various university campuses. In 1972, an additional organization, with of course an additional acronym, was formed, the Black People's Convention, or BPC. Its role would be outreach work among the general population. This was something to which Biko firmly committed. For example, he engaged in empirical research on literacy among Black South Africans, and his columns for the SASO newsletter were informed by interviews he did with train commuters. Showing a penchant for wordplay, Biko published these under the pseudonym Frank Talk. Government repression and a lack of resources prevented the organizations from accomplishing much at the political level. Some, therefore, see the achievement of Biko and his colleagues as being more at the level of ideas, encouraging unity and pride among the non-white population. As this is a podcast about the history of philosophy, achievement at the level of ideas is of course precisely what we're most interested in. One of his most controversial and influential ideas was his identification of all non-white people as black. He said, we are oppressed not as individuals, not as Zulus, Hosas, Vendas, or Indians. We are oppressed because we are black. We must use that very concept to unite ourselves and to respond as a cohesive group. The ultimate goal was to go beyond unifying blacks or non-whites and achieve what he called a completely non-racial society in which there would be no minority or majority, just the people. Lewis Gordon, who joined us as an interview guest not so long ago, has remarked that Biko saw apartheid as a war on politics since its racist structures made it impossible for the residents of South Africa to engage with one another as fellow citizens. Black unity, for him, was a crucial first step towards the goal of putting blacks and whites on an equal footing. Biko used the explicitly philosophical language of dialectical development to explain what he had in mind, and while we saw that Martin Luther King fell into the common error of attributing the dialectical terms thesis, antithesis, and synthesis to Hegel rather than Fichte, Biko more carefully and accurately said that it had been mentioned by some great philosophers. He explained that SASO wanted to abandon a false coalition between blacks and white liberals, for whom the thesis is apartheid, the antithesis is non-racialism, but the synthesis is very feebly defined. They want to tell the blacks that they see integration as the ideal solution. Black consciousness defines the situation differently. The thesis is in fact a strong white racism, and therefore the antithesis to this must ipso facto be a strong solidarity among the blacks on whom this white racism seeks to prey. This brings us back to the motivation for founding SASO in the first place. The aim was to stop working with white liberals, however well-meaning they might be, so that blacks could stand tall on their own feet. The group adopted the motto, Black man, you are on your own, 
even though, as with the ANC, quite a few members and some leaders of the movement, like Manana Kaware, were women. As a member of the movement who was indeed a man, Njabulo Ndembele wrote in a book edited by Biko, so many things are said so often to us, about us, and for us, but very seldom by us. Biko doubted whether interracial or pluralistic groups could examine without bias problems affecting one group, especially if the unaffected group is from the oppressor camp. Elsewhere, he was more blunt about the bias he feared. White liberals might oppose apartheid, but all of white society would inevitably have a stake in preserving a status quo where their race was in power, and in his experience, the liberals tended to prioritize problems affecting white society. He was derisive about the way these activists claimed to have black souls in white skins, but in fact naturally assumed that they would take the lead while their black colleagues just passively followed. Still, Biko's message was not primarily that white people should shut up and get out of the way for once. It was a more positive call for black people to seize agency for themselves. He admitted that SASO's stance might seem racially inclined or racialist. Ben Koapa, a colleague of Biko's who led the black community program, once said, history has charged us with the cruel responsibility of going to the very gate of racism in order to destroy racism, to the gate, no further. But Biko was insistent that the rejection of coalition with whites was not racist. He defended himself from this charge in terms familiar from the black power movement. Racism is not just any distinction between people on the basis of race, but must involve subjugation of one race by another. In his view, there was no danger of whites being subjugated in a future South Africa because blacks have had enough experience as objects of racism not to wish to turn the tables. Actually, this isn't the only point where Biko and his notion of black consciousness seems to be echoing black power. Carmichael had spoken of establishing a new consciousness among black people in the book Black Power, and Biko himself quotes the following line from M.A. Césaire, We are ready on every plane and in every department to assume the responsibilities which proceed from this coming into consciousness. Biko even uses Blyden's expression African personality at one point. If this kind of quoting and invoking can be seen as the healthy recycling of ideas in Africana thought, one instance of recycling by the movement tipped over into the realm of blatant plagiarism. The aforementioned Ben Koapa gave an impassioned speech which turns out to have been an edited version of an essay by Lerone Bennett from Ebony Magazine. The edits were significant, though. In this and other more respectable cases of borrowing, rhetoric from Negritude writers, Fanon or Black Power, was updated and altered to make it more relevant to the South African context. So, even if no less an observer than Mandela said that Black consciousness was, in essence, a rehash of Garveyism, it is well worth understanding it on its own terms. There are several attempts in Biko's writings to define it, which cluster around a set of ideas without lining up perfectly. Here are two examples. In a piece for the SASO newsletter called We Blacks, written in 1970, just as he was introducing the concept of black consciousness, Biko outlines its goals as follows. The first step is to make the black man come to himself, to pump back life into his empty shell, to infuse him with pride and dignity, to remind him of his complicity in the crime of allowing himself to be misused, and therefore letting evil reign supreme in the country of his birth. This is what we mean by an inward-looking process. This is the definition of black consciousness. Then, in a position piece for an SASO training course written in 1971, he said that black consciousness is, in essence, the realization by the black man of the need to rally together with his brothers around the cause of their operation, the blackness of their skin, and to operate as a group 
in order to rid themselves of the shackles that bind them to perpetual servitude. There's a lot packed into both of these passages, but we can start with the fact that in the first passage, Biko does not emphasize political action, or for that matter, any attitude toward white people, whether persecutors or all too helpful liberals. Instead, and as is already suggested by the term consciousness, his focus is on black people's attitude towards themselves. Even the allusion to the crime of apartheid only comes in because there is a need to examine the black man's own complicity in allowing it to continue. By contrast, the second passage does look to more concrete action, and in particular to political unity, rallying with the brothers and operating as a group. But even here, we're still talking about a certain form of awareness, since Biko is interested in what the black man needs to realize. Thus, the word consciousness continues to be appropriate. So, if we want to compare this to something from the American context, we are arguably closer here to the idea of black pride than black power. Biko wants to encourage black people to see themselves in a certain way, for one thing as a group who can work together, and for another thing as worthy of respect because they respect themselves. Hence his interest in African culture, the topic of another essay written in 1971. Like many other African thinkers, Biko wanted to emphasize the value of African tradition, so that he was, for instance, reluctant to dismiss the scientific merit of beliefs in witchcraft, even if he allowed that he did not believe in it himself. He associated with indigenous African culture many of the features we've discussed in earlier episodes, like monotheism and communalism. On the latter point, he observes that in traditional societies of Africa, there is no such thing as two friends, because the whole group are so tightly bound. While Biko recognized the upheaval caused by colonialism, he insisted that these cultural forms had not been destroyed. In essence, even today, one can easily find the fundamental aspects of the pure African culture in the present-day African. Some recent secondary literature on Biko places him in the existentialist tradition. Biko notably mentions Sartre in an issue of the SASO newsletter. Having quoted Sartre's claim that man is condemned to freedom, Biko says he would hastily add that he's condemned to responsibility, too, which is a human attribute. But whereas Sartrean existentialism is atheistic, Biko was also a religious thinker. This is something we pointed out already in episode 113, where we highlighted Biko as one of the South African thinkers who took up the mantle of black theology. Biko was fascinated by James Cone's ideas and captures them well in a single line, saying that the white god has been talking all along, and it is now time for the black god to raise his voice and make himself heard. In South Africa, the churches were helpful in spreading the black consciousness idea because the government was somewhat more reluctant to bring down their fist on religious organizations. Ben Koapa was important here, since under his leadership, the black community programs served as a link between Biko's movement and Christian groups. Biko explored the topic of Christianity most fully in an essay called The Church as Seen by a Young Layman. Here, he criticized the way that, in Africa, Christianity had not been adapted to the needs of the people. Instead, it had served first to colonize and now to subjugate them. Yet, he saw potential in black theology to help liberate black Africans, starting with their minds. This was a form of Christianity that drew attention to injustices rather than encouraging believers to suffer peacefully. But in a characteristically barbed caveat, Biko ends the discussion by saying, I would like to remind the black ministry, and indeed all black people, that God is not in the habit of coming down from heaven to solve people's problems on earth. Even if Biko wasn't expecting miraculous deliverance, he was still fundamentally an optimist. 
In the face of quite a bit of evidence to the contrary, he persisted in believing that, as he put it, the South African government would not be completely Hitlerized. Ultimately, whites would come to realize the injustice of the society they had created and change it, or rather allow black people to change it. We believe, he said, that we have interpreted history correctly, and that the white man anyway is going to eventually accept the inevitable. And of course he was more or less right, even if the inevitable came only decades after Biko became apartheid's most famous victim. As a thinker whose main goal was to change the attitudes of his people for the better, Biko could not afford the luxury of a bleak outlook. Let us march forth with courage and determination, he wrote, drawing strength from our common plight and our brotherhood. In time, we shall be in a position to bestow upon South Africa the greatest gift possible, a more human face. Another radical black icon of the 1960s and 70s, with striking similarities to Biko in such matters as the definition of blackness, was Walter Rodney of Guyana. He will serve us as another example of how the story of Africana philosophy crisscrosses the borders of the world, as he spent some of his time as a professor and activist in Nyerere's Tanzania and in Jamaica, where he connected with Rastas. As we will see, telling his story will even require us to spend some time in Chike's home country, Canada, as the city of Montreal became a hugely important site in the global story of the Black Power movement in late 1968 and early 1969. So in honor of two of the stops on this itinerary, why don't Jamaica firm resolution to hear all about this important guy on a next episode of the history of Africana philosophy. Mm-hmm.